We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. I am not a motivational speaker. I am a Bible expositor. You don't want to hear what I have to say. We need to hear what God has to say, amen? So we are studying verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. And we bring ourselves to chapter 13. And let me tell you something. As I, I probably studied harder for this message than I have for most over the past several months. And the reason is... This is what commentators call the most difficult chapter in all of the Gospels. So we've got our work cut out for us this morning because there's really six different ways to see this uh, chapter, but I'll get into more of that in a minute. All right, follow along on the screen or on your Bible or device as I read in Mark chapter 13. It says, And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one le- not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but yet the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they, will, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring, to you, bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And a father's child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not return back to get his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been since the beginning of the creation that God created unto now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, elect he, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. 
But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And would everybody read together with me on the last verse? And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, this passage means exactly what you ordained it to mean. But sometimes we as human beings with flawed minds and flawed brains don't fully understand all that you're trying to say. Lord, give us wisdom this morning to understand exactly what you wanted to say to us today and what you intended it to say to those who read it first and even those who read it here 2,000 years later. Father, give us wisdom. Give us understanding. Help me to be able to communicate your truth with your Spirit's help. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. So, how many have ever had a surprise birthday party? Raise your hands if you've ever had a surprise birthday party. Okay. Anybody ever had a surprise birthday party that went wrong? Like, didn't turn out right at all, okay? Um, there was one in Oklahoma where this mom thought that it'd be a good idea to have Bigfoot surprise the little kids. Yeah, you need to watch the video. <laughs> it is hilarious. So the birthday girl was hysterical, screaming and crying. All of her friends ran for cover. They were totally terrified. It probably took a good 30 to 45 minutes to round up all the kids, the four and five-year-olds who were crying, terrified by Bigfoot coming to the birthday party. Of course, the, what the mom was thinking, I don't know, but she's from Oklahoma, so go figure, you know. You know, the second coming of Christ should not be a surprise to his children. It'll be a total surprise, a surprise gone wrong for those who do not follow Christ. But for us, it should not be a surprise. And that's one of the main points of Jesus teaching this to us. At the beginning and the end of this passage, he says, be on guard, be on guard. You need to watch for this. You know, it, it'd be like when someone breaks into your house and steals things, you're like, oh my gosh, we didn't see it coming. But if I told you, hey, tonight at midnight, someone's going to be knocking on your door with bad intentions. Do you think you're going to be ready? I think you all will be ready. I think you'll have that 9mm ready, and you're ready to go and, and to scare them off. So here's what will happen. And he breaks it down into three categories. And this is where people have a hard time understanding. And let me just say this. There's, like I said, there's six different views on how to interpret this chapter. One of the first views is that all of this happened in 70 AD. And those people are called preterists. They believe that everything that he just talked about already happened. And then some people believe that this is all future and it's all the end times. But really, neither one of those are right. And then the other four in between, people, good people, good Christians, disagree on which happens when. But here's how I see it. And even my view has changed on this some. So be prepared to, to not necessarily swallow what I'm saying, but be prepared to have an open mind to see if you want to compare to what you think. First of all, he does talk about some things that will happen in the near future. The obvious one, the destruction of the temple. We do know that happened in 70 AD. So, but then he also talks about some things that happened from that point on till he comes again. That this is the way the world is going to be. And then he does talk about some things that are happening in the last days. And be, what makes it confusing for some people is the chiastic structure. And most of you know what that means. That means when they tell a story back then, they don't do it our way. We start at the beginning and we go chronologically to the end, end of story. They will tell something about the beginning, work their way into the main point, and then work their way back out and end the way they started. That's, you see that in this chapter where Jesus says, be on guard, and he ends with, be on guard. 
So he will be talking about what's about to happen, what's happening throughout history, and then he'll come back to the near future and then also to the last days. He kind of goes back and forth. And it makes perfect sense to them. We just need to be careful how we read it. So first, when he's talking about things in the near future, the first thing he talks about is the destruction of the temple. And in chapters 11 and 12, that's what he's been talking about, right? What did he do in the temple? He flipped the tables over, right? And we just saw last week where he's in the temple again. He's enforcing the no trade zone. And everybody's giving their offerings. And he sees the lady, you know, who was she? Right? The widow that gave the two coins. So it's been all about the temple all this week. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And he's all about the temple. And so he's talking about what's happening in the near future. And then he's going to talk about the deception of the world. And this is a trend that will happen throughout history until he comes again. And then he also talks about the disasters in all the world, which is, again, happening all throughout history. And then he talks about the stress for believers, how it will be hard on true believers of Christ. Again, that's been all throughout history. And then he will end with the desolation of the holy place, or the abomination of desolation, and that is for the end times. And most of this outline I've gotten from Dr. John MacArthur in his book, The Second Coming. Good reading for you if you want to follow up on that. But the temple looked something like this when Jesus was teaching there. Everything was super bright white or shiny gold. In fact, from miles away, it looked like it was a snow-capped mountain because it was so bright and so white. And many times when the sun was setting, if you look back at the temple, it looked like the sun was coming up in the east and setting in the west. And you're like, because it was such a bright reflection off of the top of the temple. And these disciples are like, man, Jesus, do you see these wonderful stones? And they were. Some of the stones were 40 feet long. And they were carved into perfect rectangles and they were shaped together. And they thought that this building was indestructible. And then they, they said, and you see what this, these great buildings? Look how beautiful they are. What are they doing? They're celebrating what man has done. And, and I have an appreciation for architecture. I mean, I like driving through the downtown of different cities and seeing the nice buildings. What's interesting is Houston has downtown, midtown, and medical center. And it's like we have three skylines, like three times as big as like Cleveland, Ohio. Of course, how many have ever been in New York City in person? Just take, take downtown Houston, multiply it by like 14, and that's what it is, and then put a lot of trash in between the buildings. That's New York City. Okay, I'm not exaggerating about the trash either. Last time we were there, which was, I think, four years ago, there was trash piled up almost as high as me on, on all the streets. And I, I asked one of the ladies there, I said, are the garbage workers on strike? That's usually what happens in the city. She goes, you're not from here, are you? I said, no. She said, no, that's the way it always is. Well, since Giuliani, Giuliani cleaned up the city, but since then, it's just pile of trash everywhere, and that's just normal for New York City. But people get all excited about big buildings. And, and, and again, I appreciate architecture as well. But I, and you can look at downtown Houston, which I like downtown Houston. It looks pretty cool. But you know what happens? We need to appreciate God's architecture and the way he designed the world. And if you spend too much time admiring what man has done, you'll lose appreciation for what God has done because what God has done totally blows away what man does all the time. And so Jesus kind of points them back to that. So Jesus, they said, look, Lord, do you see these big buildings? Like, do you see these big buildings? He's kind of putting it back on them sarcastically. He said, he said let me just tell you, there's not going to be one stone. And we're talking about 40 foot long stones in some cases. Humongous stones. Not like little bricks, of, like cinder blocks like this place is built out. We're talking humongous blocks. He said, they will be totally knocked down. Like not one left upon another. They will all 
be thrown down. And of course, this came true approximately a little about 37 years later when Titus uh, Vespasian came in and tore the temple apart, killed tens of thousands of Jews, committed the rest of them to slavery, leveled the temple, leveled the city, but especially the temple. And some historians believe that the reason he did it was not only because Israel you know, was rebelling and things like that, but he wanted to take it apart because he heard a rumor that there was gold buried in the foundation of the temple. So that's why he literally pried rocks over rocks and, and just looking for this gold. And to this day, this is what the walls of the temple look like. They've been left there to, and not even put back just as a sign of history. Here's what happened. Well, here's what the Romans did to our city in 70 AD. So Jesus proves his divinity as God that he predicts the future. I mean, here is a very specific temple of something that everybody thought, there's no way it would happen. Do you see this temple? I mean, maybe knock it down, maybe destroy it, maybe take it over. But to level it, that would take a lot of work. It took 68 years to build it. It would take a lot of work to destroy it, but they did. So he says, it's something interesting. He said, they talk about what wonderful stones. Okay, that's a key word. Keep that in mind. And then in verse 2, Jesus says, there will be not one what? Not one stone left upon another. And this reminds us of what, in a similar passage, when Jesus, in Luke 19, the crowd, when Jesus was coming in, his triumphal entry, as people often call it, they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And what happened? Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're giving you glory like you're God. You need to tell them to be quiet, not commit this blasphemy. And you know what Jesus' response was? What's the key words here? Stones, stones. Watch this. He says, and he answered, he said, I tell you, if these were silent, these people were silent, the very stones, and a lot of people say, oh, rocks? Like, oh, little rocks will cry out? No, the stones of the temple will cry out and declare that I'm God. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. Because guess what? The crowd turned silent. They stopped saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then they started saying, crucify him, crucify him. They stopped praising him. So guess what? 40 years later, the stones of the temple said, yep, he was right. He was God. The stones did cry out. So it's not some quaint little story about kids singing, oh, and the rocks will cry out. There's a lot of songs about that. But this is talking about the context is the stones of the temple proved that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was God in human flesh, just like he said based on his prediction. So we see the destruction of the temple. The next thing we see is the deception of the world. And this is what happens all throughout history, that people are being deceived. So where Jesus is saying all this is on the Mount of Olives. Now that's important because prophecy says when Jesus returns, guess where he's going to put it two feet down? On the Mount of Olives. And so he's having this very conversation about his second coming at the place where, he, where it will happen. In Zechariah, Again, hundreds of years in advance, it says that on that day when Christ returns, his feet, the Messiah's feet, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. The Mount of Olives is like two like hills side by side. They're kind of connected. And some people interpret this literally, which I do. Some people say it's a metaphor. But it'll literally like will split and become, and become very wide at that point when Jesus touches his feet down. And so he's on the Mount of Olives. And the inner circle plus one, two sets of brothers, Peter and James, John and Andrew, they ask him privately. Because Jesus' public teaching is over. They, they ask him privately because they don't want to stir up a commotion with the crowd. And they, here's what they ask him. They said, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign 
of all these things that are about to be accomplished. Notice it's two questions, when and what. And in Matthew, he talks about when these things will be and what will be the signs of your coming. So they ask two different questions, and that's the thing. You, if you're list, listening carefully, you will see that he answers the two different separately. So they can't all be, the answers be lumped in, oh, all this already happened, or all this is future. He's answering two-part questions. When the temple's going to be destroyed, and what's the signs of my coming, and when these other things will happen. So Jesus began to tell them, say to them, <clears throat> see that no one leads you astray. That is super important. There's so much false prophecy out there today. People love prophecy because it sells books. There was one guy who did a book when I was young. It was called 88 Reasons that Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Well, that didn't happen. The guy made a lot of money on the book. And there's a lot of people, remember, you all remember Y2K? You know, Jesus is going to come back then. And, and what happens is people make so many false predictions and prophecies that the average person who's not a Christian goes, oh, Christians are stupid. And a lot of them are, because they, they just make dumb stuff up. We don't know. Jesus made it very clear that no man, what, knows the day or the hour. So when someone starts telling you they know the day, you need to beware, okay? Um, so, and he says that many will come in my name. And this has been all throughout history. People claiming that they're coming in the name of Jesus, and many claiming to be Jesus, Okay, there's a guy in Australia that claims to be Jesus and is building a following. I don't know who's following him there, but they, they are. And there's, there was even a guy in Sugarland years ago who had a big following. He claimed to be Jesus has returned. And it's just crazy what people will do and what they'll follow. But you need to be careful that you don't get all sucked into this stuff. Because you can watch one day on Fox News something that's happening and then run to your Bible and say, oh yeah, that's what it's talking about. We don't work that way. We don't start with the news and then interpret the Bible. We start with the Bible and we interpret the news. And we need to be careful we do that because there's many people who will want to lead you astray in those areas in order to sell books and whatever else. So then he talks about all the disasters that are in the world. And I believe this is something throughout history. This is not just an end times thing. Let's, let's look at it and see if you see what I see. Wars and rumors of wars. 95% of the civilizations around the planet have been engaged in war at some time in history. We are a planet that can't seem to shake war. Remember World War I? Remember what it was called? The war to end all wars. <laughs> just a few years later, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam, and just on and on and on, all the lists. I mean, the war, wars got worse. The, the, United, the League of Nations was first during World War I. What a total disaster that was. The UN is just worse of a disaster. They just have more money to deal with it. And the United States keeps funding them for some strange reason. We pay the bulk of it for them to just do nothing but blame us for everything and blame Israel for everything. And they've done nothing to stop wars. In fact, they contribute to the problem. He says, this must take place throughout all history. But watch what he said here. But the end is not yet. So when people tell you that wars and rumors of wars are a sign of the end times, he's saying, no, the end's not yet. This is something to deal with all the time throughout all of history, and it will be before the end takes place. So, it's, so now, and I've already said about the 95% of the world, and then what's really interesting is right now there's currently 11 conflicts around the planet. All 11 are not territor territorial or political, they're racial-based. You got races, eight racial groups killing one another because of different religion or different skin color, things like that. So there's different theories on why our planet 
has constant war and we can't seem to shake it. First of all, there's the Marxist theory. And you hear this really popular. Marxism amongst stupid 20 and 30 year olds is becoming popular. They obviously got an F in world history or weren't taught it in the first place because they're too busy being taught about gender studies and they don't even know history. Marxism fails. Marxism does not work and yet people are wanting to vote for it and bring it here. Have you seen what's happened in Venezuela? Have you seen what's happened all around the planet? They call it democratic socialism as if putting democratic in front of it still works. Greece is bankrupt. Democratic socialism. Italy is bankrupt. France is bankrupt. Everywhere democratic socialism, which is nothing more than disguised Marxism, it fails. And they blame all the world wars on, oh, well, the rich have too much money and the poor, so the poor rise up and fight for it. It's not that at all. It's not that. They may use that as a ploy, but that's not really the real reason. There's the evolutionary theory that it's just survival of the fittest. Strong nations defeat weak nations. And if that's the case, if you believe in evolution, why do you have a big problem if a strong nation defeats a weak nation? It makes the whole planet stronger, right? I mean, evolutionary theory is very hypocritical. They'll say, oh, it's wrong to murder people unless it's a baby, you know, because that's just wrong. Why? Why is it wrong? Survival of the fittest. You don't mind when a lion chases down an antelope. He's cleansing the tribe when he gets the sick and the weak. So it's such a hypocrisy on that. Um, there's the Malthusian theory, which when populations expand and they meet, people don't know how to resolve conflicts, so they start fighting. That's not always the case. In fact, many, it's not the case today. There's the rational, rationalistic theory where basically people just don't have enough information. One side has more information than the other, and then wars start. And then there's the political science theory that nations feel insecure, so they, they are proactive in trying to stop a threat against them. But all those things prove that man doesn't have the answer. Why in thousands of years, if we're evolving, why are we not getting more peaceful? We're getting less peaceful. You know, why in all these years, if socialism so supposedly works, why are there more wars amongst socialist nations than against the free? You see, man's theories fail, but here's the Bible fact of it all. Push it better here. Wars are caused, just like James said, selfishness and hatred. The problem isn't economic inequality. The problem isn't a lack of information. The problem is not we haven't evolved enough. The problem is right here in the heart of mankind. We are selfish, wicked people, and we fight to get what we want. Whether it's a fight between you and your wife, or a fight between Serbia and Croatia, it's all because of selfishness and hatred. And that's where the problem is. And the reason man will never get rid of wars is because he's not willing to, we as a whole, as a planet, aren't willing to deal with the fact of our wicked, sinful heart. You see, when you kick God out of institutions, you have to replace him with something. If you kick God out of the public schools, you have to replace it with metal detectors and armed police guards. If you kick God out of, of sexuality, you have to replace it with the whole alphabet soup, LGBTQ, and all kinds of other crazy things. When you kick God out of government, you've got to spend billions and billions of dollars trying to fix things that can't be fixed. We've kicked God out basically out of the planet. And we just said we don't want God involved, but then we wonder why the world is falling apart the way it is when things get worse and worse and worse. So he talks about nation and kingdom. The Greek word for nation is ethnos. It's not, we use the word nation as in a political border with a government. This word nation here is as in nationality. It's different ethnic groups will fight against different ethnic groups. And then again, we see that on the political spectrum today. Kingdom, which is what we would use for nation, it does have a political border. It has a king and a headquarters. Kingdoms rise against kingdoms, and there will be earthquakes, famines, 
But these are just the beginning of the birth pains. Do you see that? Many people will read this, and even myself will say, oh, these are end time signs. He's saying, no, there's always going to be nation against nation, ethnic group against ethnic group. There's always going to be kingdom against kingdom. There's always going to be earthquakes, and there's always going to be famines. That's been throughout all of history. The problem is, here's how we should properly interpret it. It's the beginning. In other words, it'll start right there when Jesus said it would. It'll continue throughout 2,000 years of history, but they are birth pains. So think about that, moms, when you were pregnant, okay, from your first contraction till when the baby was born, how many hours passed? For some of you, a few, so some of you, a couple of days, right? It seemed like forever, I'm sure, but the, the first contractions didn't mean, boom, baby, not in most cases. The contractions happen, then you have a, a little break, then the contractions happen, then you have a break, Speaking like an expert here, right? And, but then they start, what happens to the contractions? They get closer together and they get more intense. But they've always been happening. So Jesus is saying earthquakes, war, it's always been part of history. It's been always part of our sinful planet. But when it gets towards the end, what will happen? More frequent and more intense. So we could see it from that perspective. But don't think that all, all these happen or picture at the end time. So I think we actually could get a whole lot more intense, but we, I'm not really sure where we're going to go with that. So, um, so he's talked about the destruction of the te- temple. He nailed it. He's talked about the deception of the world. People claiming all kinds of false prophecies and false religions and false Christ throughout history. He talks about the disasters of, of, of all the world. You know, he could have been wrong. What if there was just even a 50-year period in world history where there was no war? I'd say Jesus is wrong, but it hasn't happened. It's somewhere, always, somewhere, all the time. And then the distress for believers is what he brings us to next. That things will be hard for Christians somewhere on the planet at all times. That's why he says to them, be on guard. When he talks about councils and synagogues, who is that? That's Jewish people. The Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, the synagogues, the Jewish place of worship. Your own people will persecute you. And then he shifts gears to governors and kings. Who is that? That's Gentiles. So you're going to have persecution from with your own ethnic group, persecution from outside your ethnic group, and all these things are what Jesus said would happen. And sure enough, they came true. Look, at, Just read the book of Acts and see how many times they were thrown out of a synagogue, stoned, brought in before uh, Caiaphas or just all different leaders, Gentile leaders, Jewish leaders, and, and everything Jesus said came absolutely true. And then he said, and the gospel first must be proclaimed to all nations. Now, there's different ways of interpreting this. One is that that happened, that they went to all ethnic groups on the then known world when the gospel spread quickly. I think that this could be a dual fulfillment that it was partially fulfilled then because they didn't go to the whole planet, but I think it also could be fulfilled later, but I believe that as the gospel continues to spread, that that will be a sign of the, of the second coming of Christ. Look at this map here. It's pretty interesting. This is put out by the Joshua Project. Now, the red is where there's almost zero gospel presence. Almost zero. And as our missionary, Brother Salih, was here a few weeks ago, he talked about the 1040 window. The 10 latitude line, the 40 longitude line, in that window right there, mostly red, is where there's hardly any gospel presence. And until recently, most missionary dollars have been going everywhere else but there because it's so hard. And in some cases, you can't get in. But Christians are getting better and better about being willing to go there and finding ways to get in there. 
Um, they, they go into places, you know, as teachers, as engineers, and now there's a whole movement of bivocational mi missionaries who are, who are an engineer or maybe an accountant or even a school teacher. They go in as that, but then they share the gospel privately and try to spread that all over the world. What's interesting is where did the gospel start? Right in the middle of the red and spread. If you, were to, if you were to go back 2,000 years ago, this map would mean where is the gospel right now? It would be red. And the rest of it, would be the, the green would be where the gospel has not been yet. And one of the proofs that Christianity is true and is created by our creator because he knows us is because no religion is spread around the world like Christianity. All the other world religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, Islam, 80% of their followers are still around where it started. But Christianity, look where it's at. It's far away from where it started. And where it started has gone the opposite. And some people can interpret that and say, you know what? See, look, we don't have to wait until we fill the red area because we've already been there and the gospel has been preached to all nations. That's one way of interpreting it. But let me just share some numbers with you that I want to remind us of so that we can always be a missions-minded church. And we've had, what, five missionaries this year visit us and share presentations. So I want that to be the constant thing that we're doing is sharing the gospel outside of these walls. So there are 17,000 plus people groups around the planet. So even like in America, we're not just all one skin color, one all group. There's many people groups. And all around the planet, there's many people groups. The ones that are unreached account of over 7,042% who have little or no gospel presence in the in their uh, people group. And if you just take the overall population of the world, 7.91 billion, there's 3.34 billion people that are basically unreached. There's little or no gospel presence there at all. So if you consider the, the percentage of people on the planet who don't can't just find the gospel like that, 42%, our work is still cut out. Of course, this number is better than it was decades ago, but we have a lot, people are being born faster than we are reaching people with the gospel. So we need to give more to missions. We need to be willing to go, but we need to be willing to tell. And we need to be willing to not keep all the money here in America, but send it to other places. Not to balance the economic scale, but to balance the gospel scale. That's what we need to be about as a church. So this distress for believers, he talks about the, you'll, you'll be on trials. Now think about that. What has to happen for you to be a Christian and be brought to trial for it, that it has to be illegal. So do you know last year in Canada there was two pastors put in jail for saying about what traditional marriage is, that marriage according to the Bible is a man and a woman and they were put in jail for it. And last year there were 12 Christian churches, 12 burned down in Canada. Peaceful snowboarding Canada, you know. And you know what the uh, their Prime Minister Trudeau said about the 12 churches burn, being burnt down, he said there was good reason for it. This is the Prime Minister of Canada. So you think there's an anti-Christian spirit that's spreading across the planet? It, it, it's coming, and it's coming faster than we want to believe. There, there may be a day where this pastor is put in jail because I will not tow the LGBTQ line. Isn't it sad that we dedicate a whole month to perversion on the month that it's Father's Day I think we should celebrate straight dads for the whole month of June. That's what I think we should do. Instead of all those other things where we take what, the beautiful gift that God has given us and we twist it. And he says, but do not be anxious. <laughs> he 
Isn't that crazy? You're going to be put on trial. You might be killed, but hey, don't be anxious. I'm not asking you. Just on your own, you will be anxious. If you think about your kid's future, you're going to freak out. But if you trust in the Holy Spirit of God, you have reason to not be anxious. These people will be brought, and in the very hour, they'll have the words to say because the Holy Spirit of God is still alive and active. And what's interesting is Christianity is the only religion that the more you persecute it, the faster it spreads. Think about that. There are 10,000, I couldn't believe the statistic, but I had to look up several times, 10,000 new Christian believers every day in communist China. The more the communist China clamps down and throws pastors in prison and execute them, the faster Christianity spreads. Why? Because these people are like, how are you not denying Christ when they could kill you? Because I love Jesus. Because he gave everything for me. And you're like, wow, I want to know that Jesus. I want to know that peace. So, and what's sad is it'll bust families apart. A brother will turn his own brother in. In communist China, when pastors get arrested, most of the time it's the pastor down the street that turned them in. Because he, his church, the underground church is growing faster than the government approved church. And fathers turning in their own children and children allowing their own dads to be executed. It's crazy how selfish people will be, but they will over this. And the persecution has been through all that history. This is not something that's just an end time thing. And he says, and you will be hated. Let me ask you a question. Is your self-esteem okay with that? You may not even, it may freak you out when someone on social media gives you a thumbs down or a frowny face. What about when they actually hate your guts and want to see you dead because you're a Christian? Are you ready for that? You see, dads, we've got a tough job of getting our kids ready for what's coming. I'm not saying it's going to be in their lifetime. It might be, it might not. But all I can tell you, the trend is it's getting worse. And, and things like Mario Kart and Halo and TikTok and Snapchat are not going to help your kids. They need Matthew, Mark. Luke and John. They need the gospel. They need the truth of God's word to be ready for these things. I want you to watch this video with me. Turn it up, guys, if you would. Let me start over. Nice and loud. Many Christians around the world experience hostility because of their identification with Christ. They face immense pressure and sometimes violence. They encounter hostile attitudes, words, and actions. Out of 2.5 billion Christians, the 2022 World Watch List reports that 360 million Christians around the world face high levels of persecution and discrimination because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's one in every seven Christians worldwide. One in seven Christians are threatened, shunned, imprisoned, displaced, abducted, or beaten. Some are pressured to convert. Some cannot possess religious materials. Some must hide their faith from their families. Some are driven from their homes. Some lose access to education or jobs. Some cannot legally identify as Christian. Their churches are raided, closed or destroyed. Our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ live this reality every day, all because they refuse to deny the name of the one who died for them the one who died to save all of us. The 2022 report reveals that persecution of Christians has reached the highest level since the World Watch List began, nearly 30 years ago. The severity of persecution and violence against Christians is not abating. There has been violence from extremist groups, military coups, 
political unrest, kidnappings and forced marriage. Many have become refugees seeking safety, and many have uncertain futures. Yet we see God at work. We see perseverance in the face of adversity. We see persecuted Christians holding on to faith under severe threat and where faith costs the most. We are inspired by their faith and courage, committed to support and stand with them as one global body of Christ. Our vision is that no Christian suffers persecution alone. Join us. We think in America we're persecuted just because if you don't get a promotion because you're a Christian or you might lose your job because of your stand. One in seven Christians around the world, this is way more serious. Many of them are losing their lives. And this is, we think, oh, persecution hasn't happened yet. We don't see it in America. America has been isolated because of our history for year, for decades. But it's, it's coming here and it's more severe around the world. So that brings us to the last point, the desolation of the holy, which is the one thing that is definitely specific that I believe in the end times, the desolation of the holy. Jesus talks about when you see the abomination, abomination of desolation, where he, it's about a person, so let the reader understand, this, this abomination is about a person doing a specific act, and he talks about being fleed to the mountains, and I believe in some ways this was partially fulfilled because there were some of the Roman emperors who did some disgusting things in the temple, so maybe that was part of it. But I think it was a foretaste of what was going to come in the future in the end times. See, this was talked about, and the reason I believe that is because Daniel, when he's clearly talking about prophecy of the end times, he uses this exact same phrase three times. In, in chapter 9, verse 27, he talks about the abomination of desolation. In chapter 11, he talks about it. And then also, um, right here, in chapter 12, he talks about this abomination of desolation. And these are clearly end times prophecies. So again, there was a, uh, about 100 years, 165 years before Jesus said this, something like this happened. So Jesus is still talking future, but something like this happened. There was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV, and he partially fulfilled this in 167, again, before Jesus even prophesied it. So Jesus is still talking future tense. But he's referring back to it as an example of what's yet to come. He's like, remember Antiochus, what he did? Well, somebody's going to do that in a big way to fulfill Daniel. So he desecrated the temple of Jerusalem where he set up an altar to Zeus over the altar of burnt offering. And he sacrificed a pig on the altar, which was a total smack in the face. And he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. He thought he was a god. And he slaughtered tens of thousands of Jews and sold many others into slavery. And he issued decrees forbidding circumcision and requiring Jews to sacrifice pagan gods and force them to eat pig meat. He totally smacked Jews in the face with all that and their belief in Messiah. And so Jesus says, so when all this happens, don't let someone on the housetop go back. Don't go run back in to get your stuff. Just head to the mountains. And again, partially fulfilled then because a large number of Christians in 70 AD did survive because they remembered Jesus' warning. And then he goes on to say, so if you're pregnant or nursing, man, and also just pray it doesn't happen in winter. And you can just imagine here on Father's Day, think about women who are pregnant or nursing and facing persecution, how much more difficult that is because their children are involved. And then he says, for in those days, so now he's back to the, into the future, he says, there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation and even till now, 
and never will be. So that's the reason this verse right here makes it clear this isn't something that already happened in 70 AD. Because we know, based on the book of Revelation and Daniel, that the, the tribulation, the seven-year period, will be worse than anything has ever happened on earth. So Jesus is clearly talking about something in the future because he's talking about the worst tribulation ever, which has to be the one in the future where, I mean, that's when the... And another reason we know it's not true is because it, he talks about the stars and the sun and all that stuff happened. None of that's happened yet. So all this will happen in the book of Revelation. So he talks about, and if the Lord had not cut short the days. Now how the Lord makes the days shorter, I don't know how that works. Some people think there's going to be a speed up in the world rotation of the earth. I think that's kind of stretched there. But he, whether he makes it seem like they're shorter or whatever, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has shortened the days. Somehow he makes it go by fast for them. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. And then this is the part that's going to shock you. My text the other day said something would shock you. And I, don't, I'm, I wasn't trying to sell this morning or make it sound like something more it is, but this was shocking to me. I think you'll find the same. So false Christs, false prophets, so deceptive that if it were possible, which means it's not possible, the true believers, the elect of God, won't be deceived. But if, if it, these guys are so deceptive that if it were possible, even the very elect who are true believers in Christ would follow in this. So be on your guard. So let me talk to you about Islam's view of Jesus, okay? And if you, if this seems kind of long, just bear with me, okay? Because this is, this is the part I think you'll find that makes it very clear that Jesus is coming. To them, Jesus was just a prophet. He was not God. He did not die. Someone, the Heavenly Father put someone in his place so he would not allow his son to die. And he was taken up to heaven just the same way that Elijah was. And according to the Quran and the Sunnah, which is their scriptures and their traditions, they believe he did not provide atonement for anyone because no one can provide atonement for someone else. Muslims are adamant about that. You have to atone for your own sins and no one can take your place. So they believe Jesus is in heaven right now alongside Allah, waiting for Allah to send him back. You understand that Muslims believe in the second coming of Jesus. And that's why it's going to fool a lot of so-called Christians because they're going to say, oh, well, we have this in common. And he will... When he comes back, what he's going to do is correct all the Christians who misunderstood who he was. He'll even get married, have children, and then he'll die and he'll be buried next to Muhammad according to Islamic eschatology. Let's just stop for just a second. I want you to look at the Antichrist that you see in the Bible. First of all, the Antichrist of the, in the Bible, our Bible, rides on a white horse. He imitates Jesus, right? So Revelation 6-2, the, the Antichrist rides on a white horse. He also he invades Jerusalem. He commits the abomination of desolation that Jesus prophesied. Okay, the Antichrist will do this. He will bring peace and prosperity. Everybody will make him the anointed world leader, and the world will be peaceful for about three and a half years. And then he will persecute Christians relentlessly. And you say, well, aren't we gone? Yes, but the church is raptured out. But those who receive Christ during the tribulation, he will persecute them mercilessly. And the Revelation even says that he will cut their, off their heads. He will persecute them. And he will rule for how long? Seven years. That's the Antichrist of the Bible. Now watch the Messiah of Islam. Okay? According to their eschatology, which means their prophecies of end time. They believe there's three great signs of the end of history showing that the world will be coming to an end. And each of them corresponds with a man. Each one of the three signs corresponds with the man. The first man of a sign of the end times will come in the end of history as the Mahdi. The Mahdi. He's called the 12th Imam. 
nothing to do with the Aggies, okay? He's not the 12th man. He is the guided one, okay? And here's an idealistic picture of what they think he will look like when this first man comes on the scene. They know that the end is near. He, this guy will slaughter all who don't worship Allah and convert to Islam. And they are identified in their writings as pigs and dogs, and he will establish the everlasting world-dominating kingdom of Islam. Islam's intent is to take over the world. So his army will be a massive army. His army will go from nation to nation, punishing believers. This is their, one of the first phases of their Messiah, okay? The holy writers of Islam say that this army will carry black flags, and on those black flags there will be one word, punishment. What does ISIS carry? What does the Iranian army carry? Right? This was prophesied by the Muslims hundreds of years ago, what they believe their Messiah will do. And so you see this all over the planet. This picture right here, it's not in Saudi Arabia or Yemen. This is in the east side of London. This is global. If, if you haven't paid attention, Muslim, Islam is taking over Europe. They are taking over Europe. And everybody's afraid to offend them. It says he will lead an army and he will slaughter all the Jews and then he will establish his rule in Jerusalem on what? The Temple Mount. Where was Jesus doing this speech from? The Mount, right? And watch this. And according to their holy writings, the Mahdi will bring rain and wind and crops and wealth and happiness, that's important, so that all will love him and no one will speak about anybody else but him. And he will come and make at first peace. This is their prophecies, okay? This is what Islam teaches that he will make a peace agreement with the Jews. Once he's killed them, they'll go, okay, we surrender, we surrender. So they'll, they'll make a treaty, and they'll make a treaty for seven years. And the Mahdi will come riding on a white horse, as it says, and they quote, the Muslims quote Revelation 6, 1 and 2, but they think it's a good guy coming on a white horse. They're Mahdi. And when the Mahdi arrives, he will discover hidden scriptures somewhere near the Sea of Galilee, and there will be hidden Gospels and hidden Torah, and they will explain the true scripture. So a whole bunch of fake Christians and Jews were like, oh, wow, we were wrong. Our Bible's wrong. The Muslims must be right. Let's switch to them. And they'll be used by the Mahdi to show the Jews and Christians that they were wrong and that the scriptures were false. And yet archaeology confirms our Bible is true, but they're going to come up with some fake versions of it. And he will come out of a crisis of turmoil, and he will take control of the world, and he will establish a new world order. He will destroy all who resist him, and he will invade many nations. And according to Islam, when Jesus comes back, he will come back to assist the Mahdi. He's the second of the three guys. There's the Mahdi and there's Jesus, and there will be a third. And he return, Jesus returns as a radical Muslim. And he will arrive near Damascus, and he will come back holding the wings of two angels who flew down to meet the gathering of the army of the Mahdi in the east and the army with the black flags. And when Jesus comes back, according to Islam, he will pray to the Mahdi who is greater than him, and he will acknowledge that the Mahdi is Lord, and he will make a pilgrimage to Mecca. And all this is resources you can get if you want to follow up read about the Antichrist, Islam's Messiah. So do you see what's happening right here? The, the Antichrist of the Bible, he has a, the beast, the false prophet, and they work together. The Antichrist of the Bible is the Messiah of Islam. So the world is looking... That most of the, the Muslim world is looking for this guy to come, and when he comes, the Antichrist, they will so receive him, and then they're going to have this plan to falsify all the scriptures in the Bible so that a lot of Christians will say, oh, wow, guess Islam is right, and no wonder the whole world will turn on Israel. 
because this is where they're gone. But let me talk to you about the real Jesus, okay? In fact, let's let Jesus talk about the real Jesus. He says, but in those days, after that tribulation, because the rapture will happen, we'll be taken up the first three and a half years, this Mahdi, the Antichrist, will declare world peace. Everybody will be great for three and a half years, but then in the middle, he's going to declare himself as God, and then every, all hell will break loose because God's going to say, no, you don't, and he's going to start raining down fire on the planet, and all the seven scrolls, the seven bowls, all those things you can read about in Revelation, and the sun will be dark, and the moon will not give its light. Okay, Again, this never happened in history in this, to this extent. So that's why we know that this is future. And the stars will be falling from heaven. Again, not in the, to this extent. So this, we know that this is future. And the Son of Man will be coming in clouds with great power and glory. You know, he will take on the armies of the world. He will take on the Antichrist and he will defeat him. And they will, then he will gather the elect from the four winds and the four corners of the earth, all those who received Christ during the tribulation. So this is the real Jesus. It's not some Jesus who bows down to the Mahdi and becomes a radical Islamic. He is the true Christ, the creator of the world. He will come back and like that destroy the armies of the world. It says we will ride with him. But the battle won't last long. It says that lightning will proceed out of his mouth and he'll destroy the armies of the world. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the real Jesus? Or will you be deceived? When the world starts saying, oh yeah, Jesus has come back, but he's come back as a Muslim. And our Bible was wrong. A lot of people who claim to be Christian will be deceived. How about you? Do you know Christ? In Romans chapter 10, it says, if you will confess Jesus as Lord, not Allah is Lord, not Buddha is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And you will believe in your heart that he died for your sins. He was buried. On the third day, God rose from the de- raised him from the dead. You will be saved. There's your only hope. Our hope is not that this world will get better and better because of evolution or better and better because of Marxism. The world will get worse and worse, just like Jesus said, until he comes and becomes king. But until he comes, he could be king of your life right now. He could become king of your heart right now. Do you know him? I'm going to ask for everybody just if you would to bow your head and close your eyes. And if you're a true believer in Christ, would you pray for those who are not? Maybe you've been nervous about this. Maybe you've been scared and you've not made a decision for Christ. No one's going to come to you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm just going to ask you right where you are. Would you have a conversation with Jesus? Would you acknowledge to him, yes, I'm a sinner, Lord. Not only is this world messed up, but I'm messed up. I need you to save me from my sins. I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe you were buried and that you rose again and you are alive today and coming again. And I make you the Lord of my life. Father, thank you for your word. These are scary scriptures, but Lord, we know that we have a Savior who is on the throne. So we don't need to be anxious about anything, but we can totally trust that you're in control. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the globe who are, are being persecuted way worse than we've ever even thought about. We pray that you'd give them power from the Holy Spirit and peace to hang on and to, to believe in you and to trust you to the very end. And we thank you for all this in Christ's name. Amen. And if you made a decision, there's my cell phone number. I would love to have a conversation with you about your next steps as a true believer in Christ. Um, it's time for a question and answer session. Um, my phone's right here. And Ashley, would you like to help me with that? Okay, cool. So you can text in a question anytime, especially if you're watching online. 
uh, you can text in, or if you text in, it doesn't show up, you can raise your hand and ask it however you want there. And the, course, the first question is from Ashley Sharp. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, I'll just ask you. So um, we're talking about the difference between about how Jesus is not a prophet, that, you know, some people say he's a good teacher or he's a prophet, but what is the actual difference between a prophet and the Son of God? Like, what's the major defining factor here? Okay, so he's not, the key word is just. He's not just a prophet, but Hebrews calls him the great prophet because he's the ultimate one that predicts the future. Everybody else kind of speaks for him. So uh, what's the difference between a prophet and the Son of God? Well, the Son of God is a prophet, but the key word is he's not just a prophet. Okay, And uh, if you read Daniel, the, the Son of Man is the title Jesus claimed for himself as the one sent from God the Father. And of course, we believe that God presents himself in three persons, three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all equally God. Okay, People will say, well, the Holy Spirit's just a force or a power. But in, in Acts chapter 7, I believe it is, Peter, when the people give the offering and then lie about it, he says, why have you lied to God? And then two verses later, he says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Equating them two. And of course, Jesus always refers to this, the Holy Spirit as a he, not an it. So Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses believe the Holy Spirit is just like electricity. It's like power. You just tap into the power and you whatever. But the Holy Spirit is a person who lives inside of you. And so is Jesus. And so is the Father. Okay, they're all equally God. I think it's important to note that when Jesus speaks and he's prophesying, he doesn't say, says the Lord, or yeah. thus says the Lord. He just says it, and it he just does. is, because he's under his own authority, right. which is why they had to ask him, whose authority are you saying this by? Because Jesus didn't quote anybody. He just Excellent point. Yeah, it. exactly. And back to your question, whether it was Elijah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or whatever, they all said, thus says the Lord, says thus says the Lord. Jesus came and said, I say unto you. I say unto you. Truly, truly. Exactly. Very good. Okay, here's a comment. God's original intent was for man to work with God's creation and build with it. His goal is to get us back to that state. Imagine what man will build with God's creation when sin is totally out of the way. That's a great observation. In fact, we have to get out of our heads this idea of heaven being clouds and harps and just singing Southern gospel music for a millennial. That would be like hell to me. So the heaven is the new heaven and the new earth. Where, where it's paradise restored, just as he intended for Adam and Eve. And so, yes, I, will he allow architecture? Probably. I mean, he allowed them to build the temple. Architecture may be allowed. I think that's where they're going with that. I think yeah. that's a great observation. Yeah, choir led by Randy Travis. What is the term, fall, why is the term falling stars used as literal stars and, the th and thought the rest of the Bible, it's, oh, throughout the rest of the Bible, it's used as fallen angels? Fallen stars. Why is the church? That's good. Um, okay. So I would disagree with the rest of the Bible. There are places in the Bible where fallen stars are represented angels. Stars is also often a word used for angelic beings, okay, because they are light. And so they would look like falling stars. Um, but I don't, wouldn't say it's always. And if you go to Revelation and it talks about all the literal things that are happening, the plagues, the disease, the war, the pestilence, and it puts in that context falling stars. So why all of a sudden would it be literal, 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 oh, metaphorical, now literal, literal, literal. Okay, so I think to be consistent. So um, it's just like the fig tree. Sometimes the fig tree is a reference to Israel, but not always. So it's just like if you use the word well, and I say, oh, every time you say the word well, you mean a hole in the ground with water. No, you can say I don't feel well. Okay, you're using it differently now. It's all about context. So I believe the falling stars, especially in Revelation, 
appear to be literal, so that's why, and Jesus is referencing that. I'm not saying he's referencing Revelation. He's ref- referencing the events of Revelation, that I would take it the same way Jesus did, and that would be literal. Yeah, I think that's all the questions we have, unless anyone has any in the room. Charles! So Charles wants to know how your views have shifted. Um, in the sense that, um, like wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famine, and pestilence, I think Jesus' main emphasis was, this is the world's going to be messed up for 2,000 years. Don't expect it to get better. So I think it's a prophecy over the 2,000 years of world history. But because they're birth pains, the frequency will increase at the end. I kind of always read those as end-time prophecies. That they were extremely rare in the past, but they're really coming on strong here at the end. I think they've been consistent, but consistent with a pregnancy and a delivery. They just get worse at the end. So um, that's why every generation has thought, oh, Jesus is coming now. See, look, wars. World War I. People, literally, people sold all their possessions and went to mountains and waited for Jesus to come. You know, people have been doing that throughout all of history. And so we can't look at the news and every time something happens, say, oh, man, it must be this year. It, it, it's not necessarily that way. Good question. Anybody else have a question? Yeah, Lorenzo. Oh, by the way, Lorenzo, last week and this week, dro- drives all the way from Galveston to come to church. He had been scheduled on Sundays when we, back when we were in the dance studio, and has been driving all the way from Galveston to come to church. Give him a hand. He's off on Sundays. Ash, go ahead. So make repeat the question for the for Please, the everyone. So Lorenzo's asking if there's a verse in the Bible that in Genesis that says the earth will end when man loves man and woman loves woman, and he wants to know if that's true. I'm not aware of that in Genesis. Now, oh. it is in the Bible. Romans chapter one talks about homosexuality and lesbianism and makes it very clear. So when people say, "Oh, that's all Old Testament stuff." <laughs> Just read Romans chapter 1, and all throughout the New Testament, it condemns homosexuality very, very clearly. And um, Now, is it a sign of the last days? Yes, I believe so. Um, if you read 1 Timothy, it talks about in the last days, men shall be lovers of their own selves. I think that's, all, I think that's a homosexuality reference, not just a selfishness ref- reference. Patrick? Yes. That would be symmetrical, wouldn't it? That's a great observation. Good deal. All right. Anybody else? All right. Let's stand and let's pray. Thank you, Ashley, for helping us out. I'm going to do this one next week. Is that okay? All right. Good deal. Uh, got a good question here from Andre, but it's going to take, I want to give you a better answer than I could do right now. Okay. So, all right, let's pray. Father, give us peace this morning. When we see a hurricane coming, it, it, we tend to panic on the inside, but we know that you're the same Jesus that said, peace be still to the storm and it ceased. So Lord, keep us in the center of your will and in the palm of your hand and help us to realize no matter what happens in the world around us, that we know you. And the worst thing that can happen is we can just go to be with you sooner rather than later. 
So Father, give us strength. Lord, on this Father's Day, help us as dads to step up and realize the Bible is true and that everything Jesus predicts is coming true and we need to prepare our kids for a future that's going to be darker than ours. And so whether it's our children or our grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren, I pray they'll be ready for what's about to come. And Father, help us to realize that we need to be urgent about sharing the gospel so that people don't have to go through all this and miss Jesus. Pray that you help us to represent you well this week. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you all. You're dismissed.